This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to The Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project. For this episode, we're departing from our usual routine, and as much as the person who'll be undertaking the interview is one of the alumni of Australian Christian College, he all happens to be the background producer of the Inspiration Project and the one responsible for getting all of the technology right and making all of the arrangements. Mr. Jared Phantom has uh, been a past student of ACC, Marson Park, and we're so thankful for the work that he's doing to bring this project to you. And he has the pleasure of uh, speaking with our special guest today. Over to you, Jared. Professor Kim, absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Inspiration Project. Thanks, Jay. That 50 years and all that long, this makes me, obviously I'm very old, aren't I? So it makes, no, no. It makes me sound old. No way. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm oh, pretty good, thanks. Yep. Good to hear. So, Professor Kim... So able to share, just to start off with, how you came to faith, and then we'll dive into all the other stuff. Yeah, okay, thanks. So um, a friend of mine said the other night, I wish I'd have had a dramatic conversion. <clears throat> uh, and he said, I wish, I wish I'd have been you know, a criminal and suddenly saw the light and became a Christian. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> and he said, I'm sorry, I can't say that. And I, I guess I, I feel similar. In my, I've thought that myself in the past. I... Um, we had a Christian family. My mother was a very strong influence. My grandfather was a, uh, a, a minister in the um, congregational church. And uh, and when we moved to live in Padstow, I was, this was in the, about 1948. It was a developing suburb, lots of bush. And there was one tiny little church there called the Independent Church. Mm. Uh, and there was an independent Sunday school. And when I was 10, uh, somebody came to the Independent Sunday School, gave a talk to people about being a Christian, and then said, uh, does anybody want to become a Christian? And I thought, oh, well, I <laughs> might as well put my hand up. So a few of us boys went uh, went off in the corner and had a chat to this bloke. And he said uh, he must have prayed over us. I can't remember the details. But the thing I remember really clearly is that must have been the Sunday school teacher said, Kim, you've got a lot of energy. Use it for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that was code for Kim, you were a really naughty boy and you make up a lot. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, I've, I've never forgotten that. But the thing that was really helpful, I don't know whether that was a matter of conversion or not, but it was a point. I was only 10. But the really interesting thing was that he gave me a Scripture Union card. Mm. Now, in those days, I don't know whether they had notes, but they had a, a little card with a Bible verse, a little uh, Bible passage to read every day. You had to look up the Bible for, for the day on the card You'd read the passage, you'd pray a prayer, and uh, and then you put a little pin through the card to show you'd done it that day. And that was a really useful introduction to Bible reading, and I've been reading the Bible daily since then. And um, occasionally I forget, but you know, pretty pretty much since then. Like we're and uh, and um, and usually with Scripture Union. Mm. And I'm back I'm back with Scripture Union at the moment. It's very good. It's all online now, of course. So that happened, and then I think the other another really key thing was um, 
we had a thing at church. Later on, I went to the Methodist church in Padstow. <clears throat> My mother was running the Christian Endeavour Group. And uh, so we were part of that. We were young teenagers then. And they had a very strong commitment in learning Bible verses. And we had to learn <clears throat> verses um each week we'd get up and say, Bible. that was very helpful. So all my quotes from the Bible were in the King James Version, uh, but I did learn a lot of verses in those days. The other useful bit of Bible learning I'd forgotten about was um, back at the Independence Sunday School, there are about 12 or 14 boys in our class, and we decided for the Sunday School anniversary that we would stand up and sing um, and, and, and recite one verse from Isaiah 53, Who Has Believed Our Report? Mm. And so... Each boy was allocated a verse. Well, you know, the first week we came back, I was, Muggins was the only one who'd remembered his verse and done the work. So this went on for several weeks. And and the week before the anniversary, no one else had learned their verses. And the teacher said to me, Kim, you're going to have to recite the whole chapter. So I thought, oh, well. So I, did, I had to do that Pressure. as well. So that was, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> My mother said, my mum and dad were there at the anniversary and she said, we held our breath. <laughs> <laughs> were you scared yourself to actually memorise these verses? Oh, well, I suppose so. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a life verse? Oh, not really. Um, well, I mean, let your light say shine before men. Matthew 5.16 was mm. an important verse in uh, growing up. Um, when I was chief executive of the children's hospital under lots of pressures, I had um, the verse, um, young men... Uh, Young men grow weary, uh, you know, let yep. you rise up an eagle's wings. That's my life. That, that was a really good yeah. So yeah. that was in my desk drawer. I, I had it printed out and it was in my desk drawer. And I'm sitting at my desk and if things were difficult, I'd just pull it out and have a little read of that. The other one, I just remembered. The, of course, this, this, is, <laughs> this is really the verse. The, the kids used to joke with me. they say, Dad, this must be the family verse. Because I'd write it inside Bibles and things. And it was Philippians 4, 8, what sort of things are good and pure and lovely and think of these things. Another great verse. What age were you, Dr. Kim, when you knew that you wanted to become a doctor or did you know for early on? Uh, well, I was probably about 16. Um, and we were sort of, you know, Dad was a tradesman. We didn't have a lot of money and uh, we didn't know anything about medicine. No one in our family had ever, no one any either side of our family had ever been to a university. And so... I used to hear the overhear these conversations from my parents. This sounds silly, really, but I'd hear them say, "It's a pity, can't. It's a pity, can't. It's a pity, Kim can't be a doctor." Mm. And then I said, "Why?" And they said, "Well, you've got to be rich to be a doctor. You've got to buy a practice. You know, you've got to pay for university, all that sort of stuff." So, so that I grew up with that feeling. And then when I was about sixteen, I thought, "Well, you know, this isn't impossible." So <clears throat> I said. Um, a good thing about it. I knew there were Commonwealth scholarships around, so you could, could pay university fees. <clears throat> and I said, you know, I was, I was in my fourth year at high school, at the five-year high school course. So I said to Dad, who was gardening, I can just see that, see it happening. Um, I want to be a doctor. I'm going to go to university. Uh, I'll work, pay for all my textbooks. I'll get a scholarship, pay for all my fees. But I'd really like to live at home and be fed for, for six years <laughs> as a student. And, and uh, you know, of course, my parents were happy about that. But Dad said to me, well, he didn't say a lot, but he said, well, it's okay, but uh, as long as you don't become a missionary and get eaten by a lion. It was, it was a strange response. So when people say, well, why didn't you become a missionary? I, that's the reason. <laughs> <laughs>
Were you, what was it that sort of got you across the line to say, no, I'm going to become a doctor no matter what at A16? Oh, I think it's just rebellious. I mean, I mean when you're told you can't do something, then you want to do it. And mm. so that was an option that was not available to me. So I thought, oh, well, that'd be good. So how did you actually, you mentioned that you grew up with not very much. Well, we were okay, but we weren't, you know, we didn't know any rich people. What was some of the lessons that your mother and father taught you that you still remember to this day? Oh, well, that was a strong Christian influence. Um, we were careful. We were frugal, which I think is very good. We knew yeah. the value of things. That was very helpful. Um, they were a loving, caring family. That was, a, I mean, as a paediatrician, I know the importance of, of parents and, and role models. So they're very good, very helpful role models. I think they were the main things. We were, we had a happy, Uncomplicated life. Mm. What does it mean? We didn't go to theatre. We went to a restaurant once. I remember going to a restaurant once. <laughs> <laughs> was it a good restaurant? Well, it was Chinese, the local Chinese place <laughs> down here. There wasn't any choice in those days. <laughs> no, I can't imagine. What does it mean, uh, Dr. Kim, to actually be an effective, godly role model? What, what does that entail? Oh, gosh, I don't know because I don't, I don't know whether I am. I just, I mean, you're just. You just try. I mean, I think I think reading the Bible regularly is really important, and mm. praying is really important, and being part of a church community is important, and uh, and those things are all very helpful to me. We have a fabulous church community at the moment, and a wonderful home group. Uh, so that's that, that's all helpful. I mean, it's a constant battle, isn't it? You've got to keep mm. thinking and reading. Um, and I, I have lo- I hang out with lots of people that aren't Christians. And I think that's that's good in a way. I mean, most of my friends and yeah, oh, probably probably a majority of my friends and many of my and the major, great majority of my colleagues aren't Christian. But I mean, at least it's I'm not living in a uh, sort of microcosm of Christians that get, don't get a chance to see anybody else. So mm. yeah, I want to take it back a little bit to your school environment, how you grew up in in school. Were you sort of a smart kid, academic? Did you struggle? Academically, well, it was a pain in the neck. I think probably. <laughs> um, I went to Canterbury High School. It was a selective school at that stage, and I was in the did well there. So it was pretty. I was. I mean, I knew I could get a Commonwealth scholarship because I I was always in the top. Well, I shouldn't say, but I, I always did fairly well, mm. and I knew that our school always got at least twenty Commonwealth scholarships, so I knew I'd get one. So I mean, I didn't have to worry too much about that. Did you have any teachers that? You remember that gave you profound lessons at all? Oh, not really. We were, uh, you know, we skylarked around and mucked up a lot. We had a really <laughs> good French teacher who um, who had a very strong um, political, almost socialist views, and and he was quite influential in, in some of the things he, he taught us. He, I can't remember much of the French, but he, there were a lot of life lessons he told us. And uh, we had a very good... Uh, Another Christian teacher who used to run the uh, was the teacher who was the nominal supervisor for the Inter Christian School Fellowship ICF, mm. and he was he was he was good too. Uh, yeah, it was school in those days we just got through it, and it was just it was fun. Mm. And then you went on to university and studied at university for how many years? Uh, Sydney University. So that was a six-year course. Um, I think Sydney University. Had was the only place offering medical school at that stage. The year I started, which was 19, the year I started was 1961, a long time ago, uh, New South Wales University had just started its medical course. So not 
having any medical role models and knowing, knowing anybody, I thought, well, I might be a bit risky to go to a new medical school. Mm. Uh, and of course, it wasn't hard to get into university. That was anybody could get into university. Mm. It didn't have to do any to really to enrol in medicine. You just turned up, and um, as long as you as long as you had five basic passes, five out of six basic passes in the leaving certificate, which is the equivalent of the HSC now, um, you could get in. So we had nearly 600 people in first year. Wow. A friend of mine said to him when we were residents, he said, how did you get into medicine? What, what made you decide? He said, oh, he's a keen surfer. He said, oh, I, was, I was down surfing with some mates and I said to them, I'm not sure what I want to do. And one of my mates said, oh, I'm doing medicine. He said, oh, when do you do that? He said, enrolment's tomorrow. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> so he went up to it. But but then it was wholesale slaughter for the first two years. Mm. So roughly 300 passed first year and maybe 120, 150 passed of those past second year. So there were only about 100 of us left wow. in second year that, that had got through without repeating. Quite a few people repeated. I think if you repeated, failed to year twice, you were gone. Um, but it was... I mean, now the now the anxiety is at school leaving. Then the anxiety was, will you get through? Will you, will mm. you pass? Especially secondary, which was terrifying everybody. Yeah. Terrifying. Was terrifying. I was terrified. I was very anxious, really worried. I wasn't a brilliant medical student at all. I was in love, which occupied 90% of my brain. Um, yeah. The same woman you were. Yeah, yeah. I'm still in love. Same person. Wow. <laughs> How about that? Worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, but it was it wasn't uh, it was it, it was it wasn't um, collegiate and help, helpful and friendly because you knew that uh, two of, if there were three sitting on a bench, you knew two of them statistically mm. wouldn't get through. So people were reluctant to share any knowledge or study together, or explain facts because that might give someone an, an advantage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible. It's good now. It's, yeah, they encourage it now. Yeah, and the uh, and the and the teaching is is fabulous now, and the students are pretty good. I mean, I still teach at, at universities, and um, they're fabulous people. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions revolving around that. So, firstly, we'll go to what did you love the most about being in medical school, and then we'll transition to another question out, out, outside of that. I didn't love much about it at all, actually. <laughs> well, no, well, that's, that's, not, that's not true. I don't, well, kept me there because I'm, I'm de determined. Um, I was worried about failing a year because I mean, I was I was in love, and you know, in those days nobody got married, and and um, uh, it, it got good. We we didn't see a patient until our fourth year, so it was all a bit of a mystery. They were telling us stuff, but we didn't really, it didn't make a lot of sense. You know, we were learning anatomy and physiology and biochemistry, but it didn't gel for me. But the last three years were clinical years, and that was that was exciting. And I, I did enjoy, I enjoyed that immensely. Um, uh, it was it was fun. We were seeing patients. We were, you know, it was good. Amazing. I mean, I was just, just blown away by what I was learning and seeing this little, this kid from Padstow that didn't know much about the world. It was phenomenal. Mm. I can imagine like being in that that room and just having your, your mind blown by something very, very new. It's happened to me on many, many occasions. Mm. Why pediatrics specifically? Well, the short answer is because the food at the children's hospital was really good. And the, <laughs> and the background to that is, is that I had no idea. I mean, 
the only doc, the only medical graduate I knew was our local GP. So I thought all there was was to do general practice. Mm. And general practice is a really good thing to do. And, and, uh, yeah, I was, I was going to be a general practitioner. And my idea was to, I did two years as a resident at St. George Hospital, then went to Children's Hospital for a year to, to be a GP that saw kids. And, uh, for some reason, I did the professorial term when I was there. And the professor took a liking to me for some strange reason. And, I decided I'd already booked a passage on a ship for Robin, my wife, and our little child at that stage to um, to go to England. I had no plans. I thought I'd just go to England and, you know, go off, get off the boat and see what happened. And so the professor then towards the end of the year said, Kim, um, tell me about your future plans. So I told him this fabulous plan I had. I booked a passage on a ship as the ship's doctor. And he said, that's a really dumb plan. And so he said to me, you stay here next year is my registrar, is the professor registrar for the year, and uh, I'll guarantee you a good job in London. And he got me a job the year after that at a teaching hospital, St Mary's in London. So, you know, by that stage, you're committed to doing paediatrics. Um, but anyhow, getting back to the food. So I wasn't sure because, you know, we, I had this exciting plan mapped out. Robin wasn't that keen on being on the ship, um, so she was quite relieved. And... And this, this wasn't really a matter of deep prayer, I don't think. I remember sitting in the dining room at the Children's Hospital where the food was fantastic in those days for, for the doctors um, and knowing that the food in England was pretty bad in those days. And I thought, well, I could take the profs off her, off her and eat this food for another year, I suppose. And in fact, that was you know, one of the turning points. So the food was a factor. Wow. <laughs> That's hilarious, honestly. I've never heard someone say that a turning point in decision making was because of food. Hmm. Like that's especially for a doctor, something so high up. I mean, in, in people's lives, things just happen. Very few people have a plan, mm. and they follow. You know, and I've, I've never had as much of a plan. But opportunities pop up, and you mm. take them, and and you pray about them when you. There's probably more. Probably should more than I do, but but often do, and um, and they they crop up. Mm. What would you say to a young person at the moment that is just about to leave school and has all these opportunities in front of them but doesn't know which one to take? Oh, don't look for riches. Mm. That, that, you know, don't, don't be seduced by making a lot of money. Guess why not? Be, because you always want more. So it's, it's you know it's, mm. it's it's not particularly satisfying. I'd say to some of my surgical friends, you know, why, why do you want a bigger Mercedes? You know, what, what, what's the matter with the one you've got? So, but anyhow, th- yeah, don't be seduced by income and and try to do something that's going to be useful in helping people. Now, I mean, medicine's a fabulous way to do that and and that's a wonderful privilege and opportunity. Not everybody can do a job that's helpful to people. Mm. Um, but if there's an opportunity to get a job where you can be helpful, I think that's a, something to aim for. So I want to I ask you, Dr. Kim, how has your faith in Christ played a role in your in your work and have you found it difficult to be amongst people that aren't Christian in such a medical... Yeah. Um, it has, no, I haven't found it difficult at all. Mm. Uh, what is it? I work with just wonderful colleagues, so we've all got the same aim of doing, you know, trying to do a good job in medicine and, and those of us who've been involved in research and writing as well. So I've been privileged to have wonderful colleagues, Christian and non-Christian. 
I don't think it's been, it hasn't been ethically diff- difficult. I mean, I've got a friend who's an obstetrician. It's been difficult for him when he was training because he was asked to do abortions. Mm. Um, it hasn't been that ethically difficult. And, and, uh, and there's been a core of Christian friends. So about uh, over 30 years ago, a group of paediatricians around Australia, only about a dozen of us, maximum, less, actually, half of them were professors, got to go and formed a, a paediatric prayer group. And we'd meet once a year at the annual college meeting, just have breakfast together. And we'd twice a year we'd share a prayer letter, we'd just send around a circular letter by mail in those days, but not since. And that's been a very supportive group. And as well as that, we could just contact each other if we, mm. you know, if we, if we had a problem, we wanted to. And one of my friends in Western Australia, I was having terrible trouble with some, with a particular person at one stage. He'd done, he'd done some dreadful things. So I'd sent out a little message to the prayer groups and uh, pray for me, terrible situation. Mm. And I rang him, maybe he rang me, and he said, Kim, have you forgiven him? Mm. And I thought, Gosh, no. <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, I should. And that, that really lifted a burden, just that little. So that's, that's the value of some Christian friends. This person saying to me something I should have known, but I was so angry I didn't. And he said, oh, yeah, so I, I forgave this guy. He's still a jerk, but I forgave him. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and that was, that was very helpful. So, you know, you don't have to hang out with Christians constantly, but a core of, of Christian friends that remind you of the principles are very helpful. Mm. Mm, definitely, especially in, I think, in the secular world, the Bible talks about being in the world but not being of the world mm, as well, right. which mm. is a very important mm. lesson mm. for a young people to, mm. to learn and try and distinguish mm. between mm. them, mm. Um, which I found over my 23-year uh, period to be quite challenging mm. at times. Mm. But I want to go back a little bit because you mentioned when you are in, in uni that you fell in love. So I want mm. to ask you how you met your, your now wife right. and well, was, what attracted you to High her. school. I was at high school. High school, yeah, wow. Yeah, it was my final year in high school. And she um, she came to our church. Ah. She was, she was about nine months older than me. Very sophisticated. I was overawed by this very stylish, sophisticated girl. But anyhow, we had a church house party, first one we'd ever have, and it sort of, you know, we became good friends and uh, we stayed friends ever since. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was it's been really good. I've been, just been blessed to have such a fabulous wife. Mm. So I didn't have any girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you friends before you realised that oh, she was the one? Not long, not long. Like, well, you know, these things just develop slowly. You know, you've got a girlfriend; it's exciting, and and it would have been oh, probably less than a year, I think. But wow. starting to think, gee, this is, you know, I'm not particularly interested in anybody else. We, we never split up or break up. We never had fights. Um, and so I mentioned before, students did get married in those days. So, you know, we just waited, um, got married soon as soon as I graduated. Yeah. Soon as I finished, the end of my final year, we, we got engaged the year before. At the end of the final year, we got married. Yeah. Wow. And then, of course, in those days, marriage, Marriage is good, but the, the interns or the junior residents that we were called then used to work incredibly hard, dangerous, ridiculous hours. Mm-hmm. So I'd only be home every first or every every second or third night. So I didn't I didn't see her much. 
Uh, and so that was good for marriage, you know, really. <laughs> At the start. <laughs> we, we didn't. We didn't have time to have arguments. Um, but it was, yeah, that was dangerous for patients, which I now know because mm. I'm much involved in, in patient safety education. But, uh, yeah, it was good fun. And she's just been so incredibly supportive in anything that I've, in the few things I've achieved, um, it's, it wouldn't have happened without her support and advice. Mm. And she's, you know, yeah, she's good. What's been the most profound lesson that Robin has taught you that has helped you in your career and working with kids? Oh, it's hard. I'm not, <laughs> sure. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, she, Robin, Robin um, did a course uh, around the time we were engaged just before. She did a course um, to teach severely disabled children. And that certainly influenced me to develop an interest in kids with disabilities. So that was, that was a strong influence. And that's a, that's a, that's a professional interest we have in common. And there was no education for those kids before. Kids with very low IQs, they was nobody bothered about them. Um, so that, that was good. Um, yeah, she's taught me patience, tolerance, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Mm. And you've got how many grandchildren now? Uh, nine, three, three children, nine, 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 grandchildren. nine grandchildren, 50 year career in pediatrics. And what's been the biggest challenge, do you think, being a pediatrician for that long? Oh, no, hasn't been any, any, no difficult challenges. There's been just so many exciting opportunities. And, and I've had lots of different careers within pediatrics that have all been good. I mean, mm. I've been academic and writer and clinician and researcher and administrator. Yeah. Mm. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit and ask you a quick, a few other questions. What are some things that inspire you to be better in your life? Well, if I said fear of failure, you'd laugh. But but, but actually, right. anxiety is one of the things that pushes you forward. Why is that? Well, I'm not sure why. I mean, you grow up thinking, can I do things? So, yeah, I mean, challenges, anxiety, um, help. Colleagues have been ins inspirational. Mm. Um, I was inspired by Albert Schweitzer as a young man, as many people are. I read my grandmother gave me a, a children's biography, a children's story of Albert Schweitzer's life. Oh, this is pretty good. It was very good, actually. And I remember he he, uh, he, was, he was a he became a medical student later in life. Uh, he was a musician, I think, at first. Mm. And he he would he was studied every spare moment. And he'd be sitting at the table and he'd have his notes next to his, next to him. And I thought, that's very efficient. So when I was studying, I thought every spare moment I had, I'd, I'd do emulate Albert Schweitz only in that way. Um, but of course, yeah, 90% of my brain was thinking about this lovely girl that I was more interested in. So that's why I, I only blossomed uh, as, as a scholar after I graduated. Do you remember your first encounter with your first patient? No. Hmm. Mm. I remember lots of lots of patient encounters, but not the very first one. No. I remember my first encounter with a dead patient in second year because we all had to see we were taken to the anatomy room. First oh, year. that would have been interesting. And we those days we spent all of second year. Anatomy was the big thing in second year. We would have spent at least a third of the year doing anatomy, dissecting, and a fair bit in second in third year as well. But day one, we're taken into a room. We're in groups of 10, and there are about 20 or 30 corpses, naked corpses on the table. Wow, this was shattering to see these real people. 
one student just went splat and, and collapsed on the floor and fainted. But no, I don't know how I got out of that. That's not really. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was kind of with my first dead patient. Um, no, but I've, I've had lots of, and I've learned a lot from patients so much. Mm. One one child severely disabled from birth, very handicapped, and his mum was a you know was a young I thought a young lady who couldn't cope, and uh, gosh, I underestimated her. Mm. And her husband was wasn't very helpful. He never came and never visited. And I thought, you know, this lady's not going to make it, and she, she's not going to get. Well, anyhow, the the child died eventually, as we all knew he would. But she was phenomenal, and she just taught me you know, about coping and accepting. And her husband's family blamed her for producing a defective child, and they split up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she's kept in touch, like must be. Well over thirty, maybe forty years. So, I know her, and I know a daughter, and uh, so. But I thought, gee, that you learn a lot from patients, and you and you mustn't underestimate people too. And I thought, gosh, I thought I knew, but I didn't know at all. She she taught me. So a lot of listening involved in getting to know them. Really, yeah, yeah, like yeah. It takes takes quite a bit of time, I think, as well. Yeah, it's really, good. Yeah, but that's a powerful story. Do you have any more? Stories like that, some other patients that sort of stick out in your mind? Uh, lots, I suppose, but I can't think of I can't think of any cold. You'd have to give me a bit of t- <laughs> bit of bit of time. Um, oh, the most difficult one. Well, when I, I wrote this up in a journal. I was a, mm-hmm. I was a junior resident, and in those days, the consultants, the senior doctors, didn't talk to the public patients, they were called public patients then, ones that didn't pay. Uh, and once a week, if families wanted to talk to the doctor to find out what happened to their loved one or their husband or their child, they'd come to the front of the hospital and they'd page the junior resident, the most junior person on the team. And the junior resident would turn up and there'd be several families waiting there and one by one you'd tell them what was wrong with their child, with their with the person. And we'd operated on this man uh, who was maybe only about 50. And it was clear when the surgeon opened him up, there was cancer everywhere. Mm. The surgeon just had, can't do a thing, close him up. So a couple of days later, it's the top. They didn't talk to the parents. A couple of days later, I get the call. It's my time to go up to the front of the hospital and see this lady. So I had to tell her. It was the first time I'd ever done it. I was 23. I hadn't been a graduate for long. I had to tell her what we'd found and what was going to happen to her husband. It's terrible. Yeah, so I mean, that, there was, that was a difficult moment. My eyes welled up with tears. And, um, of course, hers did as well. <laughs> but I think it helped. And I, and I think the fact that I was, I was emotional probably helped her as well. Mm. Here we are 40 years later. I'm still emotional. <laughs> So yeah, there've been some and there've been some wonderful moments as well. I mean, just kids that have got better that you wouldn't have think of. Mm. One child, I, I um, I didn't know what was wrong, and he had a high fever and it just wouldn't go away. And we did all the tests and everything. And one Saturday, he wasn't sick enough to be in intensive care. And once again, Saturday morning to do my Saturday morning round, and I, oh, what on earth's wrong with this child? So I went out of his bed and I put my hand on his head. I hope I wash my hands first, but I think I did. <laughs> I put my hand in his and prayed. 
mm. over this kid. I thought, oh, well, I'm a Christian. Um, yeah, got all the medical science in my hands, but I'm also going to have prayer as well. Mm. Anyhow, the fever went. The kid got better. Now, I, I can't say that was my prayer, fixed it, mm. but it might have, and God might have decided to do it then. Who knows? But, I mean, my, my view of that is that, uh, you know, God can do stuff, and if he wants to do it, he will. And if you're a doctor and you're a Christian, it's, it's an extra therapeutic tool you have. So we had a very good group of chaplains at the hospital mm. and, and a chapel, and the chaplains were cooperated very well, and I, and, uh, I, I knew them quite well. Uh, but they had in the front of the chapel on a lectern a, uh, a, a pen and a notebook, mm. and parents can come along and write, Write a notebook, pray, prayers, mm. requesting prayer. And the chaplains would every morning pray for what was in the book. And so when I was doing rounds or wandering around the hospital, uh, when I had a moment, I'd pop in, just pop in quickly there and read read some of the prayers. It was beautiful. What, what could you say, like three pieces of advice that you could give to a young person that is just starting out, struggling or needing a boost in their life currently? Well, that's difficult, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I need a warning about that. Well, <laughs> I mean, some of, the, some of the answer, things change and circumstances change. Mm. And these days there are so many different opportunities and, and different jobs, so you're not in, not, you don't have to be in the rut or the same thing all your life as you found in, in your life. Um, and uh, and don't be don't be seduced by the dollar, and try to associate with good people. I think that's really important. I mean, hanging out with hanging out with dubious people is uh, potentially attractive, but potentially quite serious as well. So mm. try and hang out with some good people. The Bible does talk about who you do, who you hang around yeah. will become, yeah. Yeah. and it's very important yeah. to associate yourself with like minded people mm. as mm. well. But like be salt and life, and that mixed with the salt and life as well. Yeah. Like. You know, what we were talking about before, be in the world, mm, but not of it, which yeah. is a challenge in mm. itself. But child abuse, you, you work a lot in this area, which is quite impacting as well. Why did you want to specifically focus on this area? And well, I did. Yeah, I, I, I got there uh, by accident in a way. Um, so... I was always interested in families and the social aspects of, mm. of paediatrics. It was one of the things I liked about paediatrics. You were dealing with mums and dads and kids and all the things that made them tick. And then, uh, so I had a bit of interest in I hadn't seen many abused children. I'd, I'd, seen, I'd seen quite a few neglected children and written a paper about them when I was a registrar. Uh, then on the way back from... From uh, training overseas for a few years in London and Boston, I called in the, the child abuse guru in Denver and had a chat to him. And I thought this might be something would be good to do. So when I get home as the ju most junior staff specialist, I was full-time employed by the hospital as a specialist, the youngest of all, and child abuse, this is in the early 70s. Child abuse was just starting to be talked about. It was only described in a journal in 1962. Right. Sexual abuse wasn't even described until 1977. So, and, you know, doctors were denying it and people weren't recognising it and, and anyhow. So the senior physician at the quarterly physician's meeting, and I go to my first one as the new boy on the block, said, look, I'm, um, 
I'm standing to get these abused children. Uh, I don't like them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Um, and I think young Oates, he should take them on. So I just picked it up. I was, <laughs> it was dropped in my lap <laughs> because nobody else wanted it. So, um, I mean, I'd, I'd never done it full time. I did lots of other things as well, but I saw a lot. We had a child protection unit. I saw a lot of the kids. We had colleagues that did. Uh, and I thought, well, if you're going to try and understand this problem, help these children, help the families as well, because the families generally don't abuse their kids because they want to bash them up. They just mm. just aren't coping. And so I thought I can I can do look after this, but I can study it as well. So we, as well as treating it, we documented things and wrote papers and you know, be. Uh, and it, the easy way to become an authority is to get in on a new area. So it didn't take me long to become an authority in an area because it was an area nobody knew much about. Mm. So how do you know if a child has actually been either physically or sexually abused? Oh, uh, well, from well, from the physical point of view, there are injuries that are just very specific, mm. extremely likely. From the emotional uh, sense as well. Yeah, so you say, well, it's, the physical injuries are often quite telling. Not always, but you can often tell by that. I mean, kids, three babies of three months can't roll. So when a kid comes along covered in bruises and with, with a broken arm and somebody says, oh, we rolled out of the cot, you can't roll out of a cot of three months. So you certainly don't get bruises. Mm. In fact, we studied kids that fell out of bed at children's hospital, several hundred of them, um, over a long period, and, and injuries are incredibly uncommon. Mm. Um so some some injuries are typical. Uh, the physically abused children are often too young to tell you. Uh, the sexually abused children, uh, it's it's the opposite. The story the child tells is is the most important thing, because their physical signs are often not there or unreliable. So, but the children children don't tell lies about it. They used to people used to say they did, and we did a big study in Denver uh, when I was living there. Looking at uh, false accusations, we mm. had I think one point four percent of act of child abuse allegations by children. One point four percent were false, so ninety eight point six percent were true. So how do you distinguish between what's true and what's not? Well, you can you can often tell just by if it's corroborated by another person's helpful. Um, these stories are often have a ring of truth about them. The, the, the child is often very reluctant to tell because they've been threatened. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what happened. Those terrible things happened. So they, they, they tell haltingly and fearfully. They use childlike language. Mm. Um, and they're quite emotional when they reveal this. And sometimes they don't do it for years. So, you know, people would say, oh, well, you know, they didn't tell anybody about it for 15 years, obviously making it up. But that's not true at all. You know, it sometimes takes 15 years or some other trigger to pluck up the courage to tell somebody. So, yeah, it's a big phenomenon. And and it's been around for a long, long time. I, I remember giving a talk at Wesley said at one time, a public talk about child abuse, including sexual abuse. And there was a line of ladies came up to me afterwards, one by one, you know, queued up to have, to have a chat. And they all said the same thing. You know, what you were talking about happened to me when I was a child mm. and I've never told anybody until I heard about it today. So it's been around for a long time and it's it's it's, it's hard to deal with and a lot of doctors don't want to have anything to do with it but, and some do it very well. So, you know, now there's a, there's a, a lot of expertise around mm. and it's an area that I haven't been in for the last 15 or 20 years in a, in a hands-on sort of way. You must have heard some pretty crazy stories, pretty impacting stories as well, mentally, 
and emotionally as well. How have you been able to, or what strategies did you use to help not get too affected by it? Yeah, well, I think Robert again has been very helpful. Mm. Uh, good, good, great support at home. And I think the people who do child abuse purely you know, need a medal. So I, I always did it in my spare time. I, you know, I did lots of other stuff. I, so you get your satisfaction. You, tr- you treat a child with meningitis, you know, they're nearly dead, they get better. You know, it's wonderful. It's very fabulous. So some of the things you can do in pediatrics is, is rewarding. And, uh, so you can get your, your, Intellectual and, and, and emotional rewards in other ways. Um, yeah, it's, uh, but I think people who work in it full time, uh, well, in fact, I, I really think people probably shouldn't work in it full time, but should do something else half the time, something that's, mm. you know, more helpful. And many people have chosen that sort of combined career. So what has research shown you that is the best way to sort of help kids that have been abused as well as the parents at the same time? Uh, well, that, we haven't done much research on that because there's nobody re- is really good. I mean, most of my research is what happens to them, seeing them 10, 15, 20 years later on. Mm. Uh, and, and the problem doesn't go away. Now they have a lot of emotional problems. Um, it's, it's a family problem. I think the, part of it's believe, believing the child. Um, for physical abuse, it's helping the parents to be better parents, not about removing the child. That's really re- necessary. Um, and, and we had a really good program for, for physically abused children where we plugged a, um, we plugged a, a sort of foster grandparent into the mum, the volunteers who we trained who would visit the mum, not to monitor their child rearing, not to ask what they're doing, but to give the mother mothering because many of these people had, had very empty lives. They'd never learned how to be, they'd never been loved growing up themselves. They get a baby. They think, oh, I'd like to see somebody who's going to love me. The baby screams. Yeah. It's not loving me, is it? And so the, the kids get injured. So we'd, we'd plug supports into the parents to help them. We call them foster grandmothers because they're actually like foster mums for the parents. Mm. 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 So well, there's various ways, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a sad area, but at least people are talking about it and know about it now. Just want to thank you, Dr. Kim, for your time today and, and sharing your, your testimony and all your stories as well. I've been absolutely delighted to hear them as well uh, from my perspective. So thank you so much for coming to the Inspiration Project. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Jay. 